Today's story of Sisters Who Kill is sponsored by Illuminating Intersectionality, a three-part video series brought to you by Target's Black Beyond Measure platform, hosted by Friend of Hey Friend Hey and the Friend Zone podcast, and Chef Jade of All Jades and Dr. Takia Robinson of the Getting Grown podcast. This series features dynamic discussion about identity, power, and intersectionality as a tool for honoring the beautiful complexity of Black womanhood. This is going to be the second part of the series. We just watched the first part last week, and I thought that it was really amazing. Very excited about the conversation continuing to grow. Conversations are covering topics such as race, class, socioeconomic status, education, food and food access, cultural expression, and more. One of the things that they brought up last week was that, dang, it was really crazy how as a child I had to defend my name to my classmates because people thought that it was crazy. It's crazy how the teachers will be like, Sally, Susan, Peggy, uh, Miss Williams, because y'all don't even take the time out to learn my name. And us as black children learn that and it shapes our black womanhood. In addition, brilliant black women-owned companies like Minted Cosmetics, Essie Spice, and Partake Foods are highlighted. I really enjoyed that segment where the owners of the company got to come in and talk about how their brand got started and challenges they faced. You know, I'm a business-minded person, so that was the part that really got me. I'm like listening to the struggles that everybody faced, and even across different realms, still facing some of the same struggles. Right, exactly, and how these companies kind of saw what was missing in the market and was really able to make their own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Be sure to y'all join us in viewing Illuminating Intersectionality on the Loudspeakers Network YouTube page. The first episode aired last week. This week on November 14th, we'll be watching part two at 6 p.m. Eastern, and you can join the conversation live via Twitter chat with the host, friend, Dr. Takia, and Chef Jade. That's right. And you will also get to meet and discuss live on Twitter with the brilliant black women-owned businesses such as KJ Miller from Minted Cosmetics, Essie Bartels of Essie Spice, and Denise Woodard of Partake Foods. And some of your favorite black social media personalities might be in the chat as well. We're talking Crystal West. Sylvia O'Bell, Scotty Beam, and Jasmine Lawson. So make sure that you follow and use the hashtag IIBBM. What hashtag, friend? IIBBM. And hashtag Black Beyond Measure. Because like Dr. Takia Robinson said last week, white supremacy is not a shark. It's the water. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Taz. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Listen, I need y'all to know the rules of self-defense before you go and do some self-defense. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. Our players this week are Jermaine Ellis, the boyfriend and the victim, and Kanika Kidd, our murderess. Now listen, y'all, there isn't much that we could find about Kanika's upbringing and her childhood. We do know that she was born on June 29th, 1978, we think in Indiana. And it said that she suffered abuse from her family at a very young age. Like a lot of young girls who suffer hard and harsh family environments, she went searching for love outside of the home. And that's when Kanika met Jermaine Ellis in 1992. She was around like 13, 14 years old, and Jermaine was around 18, 19 years old. And that's the first red flag. I mean, we are like 
two minutes into this, not even a full minute into this podcast. <laughs> and here we are. You have a freshman and a legal adult. You have a freshman and maybe in high school grader. and a freshman in college. Right. What? The gap is too big. It's huge. And what is your big grown ass doing? Is this your little sister friend? Like, what are you doing? You know what, Tazzy? This is crazy. I, when I was a, <laughs> when I got to Tucker, I was, I got to Tucker in 10th grade and I was dating a guy that was a freshman in college and he was a super senior when we were in high school. So he was technically supposed to be a sophomore in college when I was a sophomore in high school. So I did have that relationship and, and my uh, mom was very aware of that relationship. She had her eyes on us like a motherfucking hawk. What the fuck she did? You think my mama was strict when you met her? Oh, she was strict at that time. I never had sex with him. One time I almost had sex with him and he was like, no, because you know my mom was scary. <laughs> he was, I'm getting off subject, but they were having a very sexual and romantic relationship. Their relationship was extremely toxic and it also was extremely abusive. Jermaine had been violent with Kanika since the beginning of their relationship. And not only was he physically abusive, but he was mentally abusive as well. And he had already committed several acts of violence against her constantly. Over the years, they had six kids. Now, I'm not sure and I couldn't tell for certain if all of these children came from outside of the relationship or if they had them all together. I really assume that they did because their names are Jeremiah. <laughs> I, I really do think that they all Jermaine's kids because they are named Jeremiah, Jaela, Jasmine, Jermaine Jr., Jeremy, and Jalen. And you know niggas love naming their kids after themselves. Jalen Adam Ellis was born on December 29th, 1999. He was adoringly known as Coconut. That's a cute name. I, I know. He probably had a coconut head. Yeah, he was. So Great he was head. called Coconut <laughs> and he was like a bright, he was a happy child. He was one of those kids. He just loved to dance. He loved to have fun. He liked to go to, go to church because going to church means that you get to dance and have fun. And... Like a lot of little boys his age, he loved cars, he loved gas power ATVs, and he loved hanging out with his siblings. Let me tell you something. He was also... I was reading, huh? talking about he loved church and he loved cars. I was reading, they said one day he was out playing with his friends on his ATV or bike or whatever, and... I guess the church doors open. He heard some type of gospel music. They said he just stood up and started worshiping and singing and everything. Yes, that little baby. <laughs> there is nothing cuter than a baby at church, like a little kid at church. Praise the Lord. You better praise the Lord. Uh, I mean, and he was he was a, a sweet kid. He was a little sensitive. He had really great discernment. Like he was one of those kids. You know how, how those kids are. He was one of those kids that he could tell if something was wrong with you. And he knew how to give you a nice little cute little baby hug and say, oh, everything is going to be OK. I saw you crying. And how he was just was so adorable. So on April 10, 2006, Kanika, Jermaine, some of their family and friends, they go out to this vacant lot filled area and they're letting the kids ride around in their four wheelers. It's the perfect little open space. In this field, it was like a prime area for people to just come hang out with. Nobody really owned it, or if somebody did, nobody knew who owned it. It had enough space that people could set up their little tent, put their lawn chairs out, watch the kids hang out. It really, it was almost like a park, but it wasn't a park. It was a lot. It was like a dirt lot, yeah. Everybody's out there playing their barbecuing, switching and taking places on the four-wheelers. And Jalen, little coconut, he had just finished his turn on the ATVs when words started circulating that a streetcar race was about to begin. And they were like, oh, okay, a streetcar race is about to begin. So the lot that they're on, it's off of Fifth Ave, and it's like in West Gary. And the street, it's long, it's straight, and it's busy, right? So like the longest straight for good is good for street racing, but the busy, not so much, right? But this is where people went to street race for decades. Like, it wasn't unusual to see a street race on this street. Like, you um, know where to go in Atlanta to mm -hmm. see a street race. And then they'd be on next door talking about, they's outside my house doing donuts again. And I don't like that shit. Niggas start gathering around to see the race, and Jalen joins the crowd. Now, he still got, he just got off the bike. He still got his helmet on his head, everything. They're just like, oh. It's about to be a street race. Let's see who's going to win, right? So it's like 5.40 p.m. A burgundy Chevy Caprice lines up to race a black Ford Mustang GT. The crowd's getting together. They're cheering them on. They, like, pick up who they think they're going to win everything, right? So the cars are racing towards 
Like they're headed in the direction of the law. And the Caprice was in the lead. And this 84-year-old man, he's driving his car and the Caprice is passing an intersection and the man is making a turn. And the Caprice hits the man in his car and the Caprice ends up spinning out of control. So it spins into the lot, into the crowd, and crashes against a utility pole. Chaos breaks out. Dust is flying everywhere. Jermaine's sitting in his car in the lot when the accident happens. And he says, when all the smoke cleared, I backed up and I saw everybody laid out. I jumped out and started yelling, was everybody all right? Everybody all right? The accident left dozens of people injured and four dead. Three of them were adults, but none of them were over the age of 40. I think the oldest was 37 and the youngest adult was 21. But the saddest loss was six-year-old Coconut. Kanika said it was like a horror movie. All you saw was dirt, glass, dust, and bodies. And she begins to cry. She was like, he'd been riding all day. He was waiting for his sister to get done, and they were taking turns. Like, she has a video of him 20 minutes earlier riding his bike, you know? Having the time of his Having life. Having the time of his fucking life, you know? And then just like that, it's gone, and it's over. And so... It was a very hard thing for them to go through. They had to bury their son at the age of six. And they said at his funeral, they had a motorcycle percussion with 12 motorcycles, and they put his ATV up on one of them. Very sad situation. Streaming October 6th on Paramount+. Plus. first place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land would come back. There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. This tragedy, of course, is no help when it comes to the turmoil that's going on between Jermaine and Kanika's relationship. By 2009, the couple hadn't been intimate for almost two years. The whole family, including Jermaine, all stayed at Kanika's grandmother's house, which I feel sorry for that grandma, because that's a lot of people in your house. And then to have a toxic relationship on top of that, a toxic mm-hmm. relationship and five kids, ugh, no thank you. It was just crazy because at this point, Kanika had been enduring Jermaine's violence going on 17 years now. Like, she's, see, she was 27 when her son died. This is three years later. She's 30 years old. So over half her life, she has been dealing with his abuse. On November 28th, 2009, Kanika ordered a pizza for Jermaine, but there was something wrong with the order. I guess they put pineapples on it or whatever. Jermaine gets angry and starts going off on Kanika like Kanika was the one that made the pizza. Right. Kanika calls the restaurant, and then she drives back up to the restaurant, picks up the correct order, and then comes back home. The couple had been invited to a mutual friend's birthday party that same evening, and Kanika left for the party alone around 10.30 p.m. Jermaine arrived at the party around 12.30 a.m. Jermaine looked like he was still upset and mad about the whole pizza ordeal. Like, I just went back and got the pizza. That's how I would react. Because I would definitely make somebody go back and get me the correct pizza. And maybe still have an attitude depending on the day. I totally see that for you. But at this point, you know, like, you don't walk in here with an attitude. Kanika knows that this is not, we not going to have fun. Like, I've been having a good time for at least this little hour, two hours. And now you don't walk in with this stank-ass attitude. And so she tries to enjoy herself. She's dancing. She's having a good time. And then Jermaine comes up there and is like, why are you dancing like a little slut? You want to sit there and you want to dance like a slut? I'm going to treat you like a fucking slut. So at this point, both Jermaine and Kanika had been drinking at the party. Started drinking a little much, if you ask me. And Kanika eventually is like, Jermaine, I'm sick of your shit. She goes to the bathroom. She gets on the phone. She calls her brother. She tells her brother that Jermaine was on his bullshit and was threatening to hit her at the motherfucking party. Because he talking about he's going to beat my ass at this party in front of all these folks. Kanika's brother was like, listen, Kanika, you need to go home. Head out of there. Some shit gonna go down like it always do. Leave. Jermaine walks upstairs to the bathroom and tells Kanika that he's ready to leave. 
So they get ready to leave. The girl who owned the house at that the party was at. She walked into to the door. And when they walk to the door, they say their pleasantries, their goodbyes. You know, they're being very kind. If you were looking at them, you wouldn't even think that they had some shit going on. But you know how you you know how you in a relationship and y'all know y'all got some shit going on. It was like that. Mm-hmm. A little sad, but she, you know, said her pleasantries. Now that they left the party, look at the clock. It's 3 a.m. So Kanika is getting ready to unlock the driver's side door. She's got her hand like on the handle and he puts his hand on the handle, yanks her off of the door, and then hits her upside the head. So after that, Jermaine is like, I'm getting in the driver's seat. He gets in the driver's seat. Kanika goes into the passenger side. So when Kanika opened the door, Jermaine is trying to hurry up. He's trying to snatch her ass in the car. He grabs her purse. You know, that's the first thing he can get a hold of. Jermaine is steady going in on her. And at some point, he tells her, I'm happy that your kid died. And I know for a fact that that's his son because Jermaine was listed. First of all, his name was Jalen Ellis and Jermaine was listed as his daddy on his obituary. So what the fuck you mean, your son? He also told her that he deserved to die. You ain't gonna be too much talking about my baby. Mm-hmm. Now, Kanika, she always carries around a nine millimeter semi-automatic handgun in her purse because the streets is hard and she needs protection. After he said that... She has the gun in her hand, points the pistol at Jermaine, and reaches across the console. So Kanika is like, look, nigga, I know that you know that I got my gun on me. Stop motherfucking playing with me. Jermaine looked at her as he he said he ain't care. Kanika's purse fell in the car, and Kanika pulls out her gun, switches off the safety, and Jermaine is like, bitch, I wish that you would shoot me. He tried again to grab Kanika across the console with his left hand from the driver's seat. Kanika was steady. So mind you, all this time, he's trying to pull at her to get into the vehicle and she's standing outside. And Jermaine reaches across the console for the third time. And then Kanika shoots his ass 10 times. The court document says she shoots him 10 times. And then it says Kanika was stuck in the forearm, torso, and legs. Now, I don't have court documents. I only have appeal documents. And that is all that it says. It doesn't say, like, was she hit by him or was she struck by the bullets? What do you mean she was struck? That's all they say. She shot Did it he 10 have times. a gun? Huh? Because I feel like if she had a gun, he had a gun. They don't mention him having a gun. All they well, say is she walked over, he grabs at her, he grabs at her, he grabs at her. She shoots him. She was struck in the forearm, torso, and legs. And I was like, that is not enough context. Because they never talk about her going to the hospital. They never talk about her suffering any wounds. And if it was bullets, it wasn't from him. Because she didn't get a... I think she could have... If she was shot, I think she would have got some self-defense easy. And so I'm like, is it ricochet bullets? Or was she struck by him? Maybe. you know what I mean? I was like, it's just very unclear it, the way they it, put it. It could very well be uh, things ricocheting mm-hmm. because of the close the range. Yeah, that That is a literal quote from the thing, and there was no context clues around it. And so all of us got to sit here and play armchair detective. Welcome to Sister Sukil. After all of this is said and done... Kanika is standing there with Jermaine's dead body laying in the driver's seat of her car. And what do you think that she did? She sits on top of Jermaine's body and starts to drive home. On the way home, Kanika passes several police officers and police stations, but of course, she's not going to stop. Kanika also made 12 phone calls from the time of the shooting up until she got home to different friends and family members and we're not sure what those phone calls were about. Once she gets home, she reloads her gun, and then she calls 911. Kanika, she made conflicting statements to the police, saying, one, that Jermaine has been abusing her for the past 17 years, but saying in another statement, you know, he hadn't touched her for years prior to this incident. Like, you know, at this point, it was kind of out of the blue. You know, he might have been mean, but he ain't hit me in a while. The police were not able to locate any calls, any reports, anything showing that she suffered any type of abuse, no police records, no 911 calls to the house to calm down a domestic dispute, nothing kind of backing her story that Jermaine was violent towards her. She also told one of the transporting officers that Jermaine said that little coconut deserved to die. 
And again, later she denies making the statement, but she did admit that if she had heard such a statement, it would made her fucking furious. Kanika, you know, she doesn't deny shooting him. She's like, listen, I closed my eye and I pulled that trigger until it stopped. She, she also told the police that Jermaine was saying to her, I thought you loved me. Now, during the investigation, a neighbor told the cops that she heard Kanika say during the shooting, now, how you like that? I'm so sick of you messing around. On November 30th of 2009, Kanika was charged with his murder. Kanika's jury trial started on April 2nd, 2013. Dr. Stephanie Calloway, a forensic psychologist, testified and examined Kanika in an opinion that Kanika suffered from PTSD from the history of family and domestic abuse. Dr. Calloway also testified that Kanika had developed hypervigilance that gave her a heightened sense of awareness to cues that Jermaine was about to be violent. She stated that it was the events prior to the shooting that made Kanika aware that Jermaine was about to assault her, that was a, he was about to beat her, right? After all the evidence was presented on April 5th, 2013, the defense, they wanted to give the jury everything they needed to understand the law of self-defense. But the court refused and objected the defense every time that they tried to do this. Really what the defense was trying to do is they wanted to tell the jury that the self-defense law states, and remember we're in Indiana, this law states one person may kill another under such circumstances that the homicide or killing constitutes no crime but is justified by the law the law of self-defense. As long as you aren't doing anything wrong and have a right to be where you are, you can defend yourself with force without having to retreat. You don't have to believe that your safety depends on the attacker being killed in order to use said force. If you are attacked and you believe you could die or receive great harm, you have a right to defend yourself as much as reasonably necessary. And if you're attacked and if your attacker dies while you're defending yourself, then you are excused in the eyes of the law. When determining if there was danger and if the amount of force used was necessary, you can only take into account the viewpoint of the person being attacked at the time of the attack. So like, so like, for example, if somebody runs up on you and they have a toy gun and it looks like a real gun and you shoot them and you kill them, you can't say, you can say right there at that moment, I felt like I was under attack. I did not know it was a toy gun. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But I didn't know. So in that moment, I felt like it was a threat. So I used the force that I felt was necessary. Remember, this is not a federal law. This is a state law. And right now we are talking about the state of Indiana. And this is as of what year did this happen? 2013. You better keep, you better be up on your own laws. Ignorance is no defense. And we are not lawyers. And I do not want to come to y'all trial for doing something crazy. Mm -hmm. They can be like, just tell my story. The law also states that the right to self-defense must be used to honestly and conscientiously believe that you are in danger. You can't just say, oh, I was in danger, but you weren't in any real danger. If the danger stops before you have a chance to defend yourself, then your right to self-defense has passed and you're because you're no longer in danger. Right. The court's like, no. We're not letting you provide these instructions, but we will give them two other instructions based on the Indiana pattern jury instructions of self-defense. They gave them two separate instructions. The first one states that if you believe that unlawful force is being used against you, then you have the right to use deadly force to defend yourself without retreating. Same, right? It also says that you must believe deadly force is needed to prevent harm to yourself, right? Which is a bit of a difference, right? Because in the one that she's reading, you don't have to believe they need to be dead to stop the threat. It says that the burden of proof is on the state to prove that without a reasonable doubt, you did not act in self-defense. So the second instruction says that the killing of another person can be justified through self-defense if, one, you acted without fault, same, two, you were in a place that you had a right to be, same, and three, 
was in real danger of great bodily harm or in such a page apparent danger that if you honestly fear death or great bodily harm, that this fear does not need to be real. It only needs to be apparent to a reasonable person under these circumstances, right? So again, this doesn't actually have to be what happened, but if a reasonable, like, anybody in this situation would have thought it was a threat, you know? Like, it's how could I know in this moment, right? Even if it turns out there's no real threat, you, you the law still covers you to protect yourself. Same. So it says that the self-defense law is not to protect you if you kill a person through anger or revenge or an encounter provoked and brought on by yourself. So don't go starting some shit and then a nigga run up on you and you be like, oh, no, I had to kill him. It was self-defense. No, don't start no shit. Won't be no shit. That ain't self-defense if you instigate it. So the judge tells the jury, listen, if you believe from the evidence of this case that the defendant killed the deceased in self-defense, or if you have reasonable doubt as to whether or not she did or didn't, then you cannot find her guilty to this offense, okay? The jury goes to deliberate and came back, and they found Kanika guilty. On May 30th of 2013, she was sentenced to 45 years of incarceration at the Indiana Women's Prison. In 2014, Kanika filed an appeal stating that the instructions given led to her conviction. The purpose of jury instructions is to inform the jury of the law applicable to the facts without misleading the jurors and to enable them to comprehend the case clearly and arrive at a just, fair, and correct verdict. Kanika claims that the trial court refused to give her permission to provide her final instructions on self-defense. As a result, she maintains that the failure to fully instruct the jury as to the correct and complete law of self-defense deprived her of a fair trial. The Supreme Court reversed a defendant's conviction in a case called French versus State because the trial court failed to give the same instruction that Kanika was trying to tell the jury in her trial. Kanika said just like the French case, the trial court's instructions that were given failed to inform the jury that the existence of the danger and the amount of force required to resist the attack must be determined only from the defendant's standpoint. So they may see 10 shots and think overkill, but you have to remember that you have to look through it through my lens, not through your own. I think, so I looked into this French case to kind of see, because she, you know, using it as an example. But in French's case, he thought somebody was somewhere they didn't belong. And he was telling them to leave. And as he was, other people were starting to crowd around him. And he felt like a threat from everybody. And so he tries to back up. And he says, I meant to shoot him in the leg to get him to back off. He trips over his car, and the gun goes a little higher and shoots him in the chest. Mm. And that's how he ended up killing him. Not standing next to some nigga in a car and shooting the gun ten times. The one of the one of the main points of the appeal is about how the judge gave the instructions. So the judge the language, the verbiage that he used was what Taz told you earlier, and that was the Indiana pattern jury instructions. The one that I went over, it was like instruction two, instruction three, and that was the one that those were the specific instructions that got the French case in trouble, excluding those specific instructions, and they were the specific instructions that Kanika wanted her jury to hear. So the question is, was some of the verbiage, those little tweaks that we talked in a couple of episodes ago, a couple episodes ago about how like burglary and robbery are not the same thing because of those small itty bitty tweaks. So are some of those tweaks in the language, did that verbiage make it so that the jury found her guilty when they really could have found her innocent? The law's got lots of nitpickies. And again, it's from, it's using that, um, it's being from the defendant's standpoint. And remember, like we said earlier, she had the psychiatrist. So even though, no, he may not have been hitting me at the time, but you have to understand my standpoint. Right. I, I have been PTSD. abused by him my entire life. Right. I have PTSD. He was already pulling at me. So you have to understand that I knew that getting getting in that car would have been a dangerous situation. That's what she's trying to get the jury to see or her 
that's what she's trying to get appealed so she can get a new jury to see. The trial court is like, listen, the Supreme Court just went over this Indiana pattern jury instruction language and decided it was adequate after analyzing the lines of cases and dealing with the language of the jury instructions. And they said it's okay to use. So it's not like it cannot be used. You know what I'm saying? The Supreme Court just said we could. And it the was Supreme like, Court said it. You right. see how fickle you see how fickle the Supreme Court is. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like law is so fickle. The trial court is also like, yes, the amount of force necessary is subjective to Kanika's perspective and circumstances at the time, but it still has to be reasonable. She shot Jermaine ten times. He was inside the car. She was outside the car. So the state's like, listen, firing multiple shots undercuts your claim of self-defense. When we look at the facts that are presented, the issue of whether or not Kanika was in imminent danger or in a serious situation that was going to cause her bodily harm is highly disputable. As as we said previously, Jermaine was unarmed. Mm-hmm. He was reaching for her across the car with his left hand, reaching over a console, just kind of grabbing at her, right? and. Although Kanika says that Jermaine displayed a history of violence towards her, she's contradicting herself, saying he hasn't hit her in four years. She doesn't have any evidence to back it up. No police reports and none of that. And then you're just like, oh, nothing's happened in four years, but now all of a sudden you're so threatened that you empty a clip on him. And then... He dies in your car, and the next thing you do is sit on his lap and drive home, chatting it up the whole way. They said, the big kicker here, though, is that you told us that you wanted Jermaine to leave you alone. You told us that you told Jermaine you wasn't scared of him. If you were not scared, where's the imminent danger? Which is, which is white people not knowing how niggas talk. Right. Nigga, I ain't scared of you. I'm terrified. But you think I'm going to let you see me sweat? Hell no. Right. I'm shaking in my tube socks and you, come on. They said you must have, they said, remember that we also said that. And she a mama of six. She is probably a professional at whooping and and speaking at the same time. (sighs) Parents know how to beat your ass and talk shit. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're like. We told, with this self-defense law, it says that your fear has to be honest. Like, this is not just a license to kill. Were you honestly fearful? Or were you just sick of it? Was you just fed up? They're like, we got all this evidence. And we see why the jury didn't accept your defense. That's probably why she walked back on him saying that uh, he said something about coconut because... Because mm-hmm, it makes her seem if, more enraged, right? Because you can't do it out of anger. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they're like, listen, from the way we see it, this language ain't the reason why you were convicted. You were convicted because it ain't self-defense, girl. We conclude that the instructions given to your jury were good enough. The Supreme Court approved it, so we approve it, and the outcome of your case remains the same. Kanika is serving the remainder of her sentence at the Indiana Women's Prison. The Indiana Women's Prison is a maximum security facility, and it is also the first and oldest adult facility for females in the United States. And I am here to tell you that it is also one of the worst facilities for women in the United States. So as many of you know, the United States has the highest incarceration rate of women in the world And women are the fastest growing demographic within prisons. While many prisons have been accused of providing inadequate medical care, women prisons are infamous for being accused of providing inferior care, especially when it relates to reproductive health. The Indiana Women's Prison does not stray from this narration one bit. In a prison newsletter, an inmate wrote this poem about her lack of health care, dental care, and nutritional value. And y'all, this is written from inside the walls of Indiana Women's Prison by a woman named Tony. I came to prison. Now I feel sick. Going to the infirmary is a big risk. Corazon automatically assumes I want drugs. 
Khaki clothes instantly dubs me a thug. I don't want the drugs. Something's really wrong. This was an issue I had while I was at home. I need a mouth guard at night. I grind my teeth. Prison don't cover those. I'm told it'll never be. It's told by the dentist to sleep with a sock in my mouth. What normal person does that? And wow, dental hygiene is a huge part of a person's health. We ingest our nutrients through the mouth, our wealth. That brings me to the food we ingest. How it's prepared may pay us rest. Pounds of soy in each meal used as a filler. It's a proven fact. Too many soy in our system can be a killer. Too much. This is where the cycle starts. Back over the infirmary we march. $5 to the doctor so you can go and tell your woes. Sadly, in one ear and out the other they go. They feel they know you better than you, yet they've only seen you over the years a time or two. Their solution for you is to take a Tylenol. Most time that's wrong. Never enough at all. I'm surprised they let them... uh circulate this because you know they'd be you like know, that's what that article that said they was like this is a very um free article for such a strict prison but they were actually able to express how they felt and i mean i think that it's just so hard for because it's a money-making machine right mm-hmm. like prisons in general they're they're machines and so and women need more things than men men are disgusting men are disgusting <laughs> And they don't need any type of pads or tampons or anything like that. And so they're making women's prisons like they're men's prisons. And we don't, we can't do the same things. We need more. And men's prisons are horrible already. But like, also women's prisons are shitty. The Mm -hmm. food is horrible. People come out and they, that are still in childbearing years and find out that they cannot bear children because of, years of malnutrition here's another poem that i found it's called untitled again from frigid the beeping it's time to get up and then i realized this my body is all of a sudden dead weight and it takes all of my inner strength just to throw my legs on the floor see i am not just an incarcerated woman i am an incarcerated woman struggling with mental health for so long i've put my feelings in boxes on the shelf only to realize that they are still there after my house caved in on itself and I cave in on myself. It's too much too soon, but I get into spats or brush shoulders with every emotion before noon. I will fill out medical slips. I will see someone and they will say, would you like to try this? Sure. Who cares that none of it has worked and that my heart, this void, my sick mind, it still hurts. Every waking moment in my head feels like a game of tug or war. It won't end. So in this article or newspaper, they continue just to talk about the conditions of the prison. They're like, listen, solitary confinement is shit. And, you know, we have these work programs, but like, what are they even paying? They made a they made this chart about labor and commissary, and they titled it "We Did the Math," and they said how many full days of work and a full day for work for them is six and a half hours. How many days of work would it take to purchase one item from the Indiana Department of Correction? So, like, the first item is a bra, thirty eight days, a hat, three days, a fan. 23 days. A card, you got to work a whole day to get a fucking card. Stamps? Like a, like a thank you card or a happy birthday that you would like to send out to your family. Right. You want to get a 10-pack of stamps? That's six days of work. Some beans? Refried beans? Two days of work. Mascara? Two and a half days of work. Bran flakes? Just some cereal to feed yourself? You have to work four days for a box of cereal. For some paper? 150 count, four days, like... That's a dollar, 50 cent out here. Think about them. Half of y'all just bought y'all baby some paper. How much was college rule paper? Loose leaf paper. A dollar? Dollar 50 at the absolute most? They don't sell right now for 50 cent. They continue to speak on, like, how bad the labor wage is. And they're like, listen, first of all, 
one of these jobs we have to do is shine the shoes of these white officers. And they're like, I can't tell you the last time a shoe shiner was black. I mean, was white. It's always a black girl down there shining some white person's shoes, you know? Mm. So <laughs> let's talk about that for a moment. And then I just like, for us to do a day's labor, and these are not like people, people out here, not everybody gets to like make a career, but some of us like get to go to work doing something that we actually want to do. And even doing what you actually want to do, be like, damn, I want to go to work today. I don't want to do this shit. They're not paying me enough. No, they are can't scrubbing call off. You know, they're scrubbing bathroom floors and toilets and shining officers' shoes and maintaining the grounds and managing the library. Library, and that pays between seventy-eight cents to a dollar fifty a day, and that's at best. So that that's means crazy. During the longest month of the year, you can get between twenty-four to forty-five dollars. You're not always guaranteed that you're going to work a full day. So you might have been getting up expecting to make 78 cents that day. And really, you only made 36 or 24 because if it's not that much to clean, I ain't got no work for you. If there's not that much to cook, if we don't got nothing for you to cook right now, I don't got that much work for you. So you good. You off for today. Working for still no company hours. Right. So they're like, these people going to their job expecting six and a half hours and they leaving with two. And it's like, I just did this shit for a quarter. After dealing with the rate of pay and hour cuts, they're saying that most of the women in these prisons are paid just enough, barely out of extreme poverty. I think they're in extreme poverty, but I guess that's labeled different when you're in prison, right? These women are in there making less than $15 a month. After the hour cuts and, you know, you're already working for pennies, a lot of these women, like, they're not getting past hardly the threshold of indigence, which is like the extreme poverty in the prison, right? So indigence is to the Indiana Department of Correction standard when you make less than $15 a month as opposed to your 24 to 45, right? So if you're making less than $15 a month, um, you can receive a small package of toiletries from DOC that you don't have to purchase from the commissary. It comes with lye-based soap, two sample-sized bottles of two-in-one shampoo conditioner, a small tube of toothpaste, because I don't have to brush my teeth, right? And some polydent tabs if the women has dentures. Not pads or tampons. No food. No, nothing like that. My hair can't take two-in-one shampoo conditioner. They say it's barely enough shampoo to wash yourself for three days because they splurged on a sample size. And that's all that the prison has to provide by law. So out of 30 days, I only got to give you enough soap to get you past three. And you're welcome. That's crazy. If you're giving women that, that means that you're giving men that or less. And men are disgusting. Women take generally take pride in their um, hygiene. And men generally don't. Oh, I do not want to know what a men's prison smells like. I know, right? Probably like a locker room. Um, and then on top of this, like the penalties of breaking the work-related rules are steep. Like if they decide you don't clean something good enough, you're sent to solitary confinement. Like, how good you want it clean for 15 cents, my dog? Make it shine like the top of the Chrysler building. Like, you get what you pay for. And now I got to spend time in solitary confinement because you didn't want to splurge your extra 50 cents for me to sweep before I mop. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you get what you fucking pay for. Even if they don't see you the, the solitary confinement, they can add more time to your sentence. Like, it's really, it's it's a whole mindfuck. Yeah. And both of the punishments remove women from educational programming that helps to reduce their wage to the minimum amount. It, it's, it's, it's more than punishment. Like, you're defeating these people. I don't, I don't do it to a certain quality. And some of them CEOs like to just fuck around and flex their power. 
some people ain't never got to be the line leader or the hall monitor and they become a CO and everybody's going to rule the fucking day. But take away their education and have them make less than they're already making at on time. Like just for this piece of ass shit, it's crazy. All right, y'all. It's time for. Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I ain't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I ain't do it, but if I did, listen, if he hit you once, get a police report. You should go all the way through with the charges, but I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm better than y'all. And I should have gone all the way through with the charges on somebody, too. So I get it. But make a police report because when some shit pop off, you need to have some type of paper trail that this person was doing you wrong. I ain't do it, but if I did, she wants to aim good. I think it was fine that she, even when she said, I closed my eyes and pulled until I couldn't pull no more, that's fine. The problem was, when you opened your eyes, girl, that was when you called the police. (laughs) Not sit on top of him and drive home. That's why people were like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. That was the part that nobody could get over. You were very Shantae Mallard. Like, I'm so upset. I could not believe it. Drop to my knees and cry and call the police right then and there. Listen, when you guys are talking to the police and everything, you need to get your story together and figure out what how you want to take this to trial. You need to be thinking about trial ahead of time because... She said, she took it back, but she said that he yelled out, I thought you loved me. Uh, That puts him in a submissive position, meaning that you couldn't have possibly been in danger if he was like, oh, I thought you loved me. I thought you loved me. You got to watch what you're saying. And in that moment, the only people that knew what was going on was you and him. So you really could have told this story any way how you wanted to tell it, but you kept flubbering along the way. Also, what she mentioned about what he said about her son, like, are we mad about it and this is why we doing this? Or he didn't say it and it was all PTSD. Like, think about these, how these things you say are going to affect you in the long run. And if you have to be quiet because anything you say can and will be used against you, then be quiet because anything you say can and will be used against you. Right. And now she's going to be in prison for a very long time. All right, y'all. It is time for some reviews, and we are going to do some reviews, some listener voice reviews that you guys have sent in for us. Very excited about this. If you want to leave us a voice memo, you can on anchor.fm. The link is in the bio. All right. So this one is... You got to go move the car, come back, and then walk back. You guys don't be scared of your gru- of the gruesome details. You guys do such a great job together. You're so funny and just keep doing what you do. Thanks. I think that was a little bit of I didn't do it but if I did and a review which I'm very grateful for. Yes. I don't think we shy away from gruesome details. What do you think, friend? I love them. <laughs> Tends to be like I'm going to tell them. <laughs> Hey y'all, my name is Kiara. So with the Yoma case, I didn't do it. If I did, this is how I would have got away with it. Number one, I'm the wife. I take care of all the paperwork. It would have been no reason why Rita was not. Rita was the beneficiary and I was not. I'm the wife. I take care of the paperwork. I make sure everything, all the ducks are in a row. Number two, how come she didn't spend it like her and Chad was in a relationship? That would have justified the back and forth communications. That would justify the text messages. That would justify why you rolled up on my husband and you knew he was coming home because I want to see you real quick. Number three, you a nurse or you CNA? Either way, how come you didn't render aid? Sounds like a, a like somebody trying to be because nurses, our first thing to do is try to render aid, even though, even if we knew we can't do anything about it. So throw her under the bus. She's trash. She wouldn't have got away with it, but I at least would have tried at least something. Anyway, y'all keep on doing what y'all doing. I love listening to y'all when I'm one of my travel assignments in between uh on the road and stuff. I just love it. Keep on breaking down the song. I break out in the dance while I'm uh, listening to y'all and Taz keep on with the laugh. I love your little laugh. Have a good day. If y'all need any uh medical advice, call me. Bye. Bye. Thank you. That was great. 
Um, we also have one. This one is titled Wanda Jean. You know, I love Big Daddy Wanda Jean. <laughs> True crime checking in. I just heard you guys' episode on Wanda Jean. Um, I gotta say, I don't, I don't agree with the death penalty on this one. She suffered head trauma. She's, you know, clinically touched. Like, I definitely agree that she should have spent the rest of her life in jail, but, or prison, whatever, but that, that, that right there, what they did to her, to me, don't sit right. And I'm not against the death penalty, but I feel like it should be doled out very carefully because you just never know. And in this situation, it's like, nah, we don't put, like, people like that on that road and, and then kill them. Nah, I can't. I can't. We got serial killers in, in jail for life, but we gonna fry her? Okay. I feel you, girl. That's how I feel. I'm I'm the same way. Like, I'm not against the death penalty, but Wanda Jean's one of those ones where I'm like, I don't think lethal injection was necessary. Those are fun. Hmm. Do more, guys. Um, well, I'm gonna do that girl during Erica's episode about the shelter and why it closed early. The curfew rule for shelters is put in place to protect clients um, that are victims of abuse so that no one gets in that's not supposed to be in. So let's say the curfew is like 9.45 p.m. Everybody has to be in. If you're not in by the curfew rule, you need to call and say, hey, there's an emergency. This is what's going on so that someone is aware, not just... uh, come when you want to. If you're already a client or that's in the shelter and you leave after curfew at 9.45 p.m. and then decide, hey, I feel like going back, you've already forfeited your spot and they not, they're not going to let you back in. Some shelters have leniency and will, though. So I'm a little confused to why this person was locked out and what her situation was. So it all depends. Thank you for clearing that up for us and for everybody else listening. If you want to leave us a voice memo, you can do it as a review or saying, I ain't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. The link is in the bio and that's in the show. So if you would like to email us case suggestions or anything like that, please do so at sisterswhokillpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to tweet us on Twitter, you can at sisterswhokill. Follow us on Instagram at Sisters Who Kill Pod, on TikTok at Sisters Who Kill Podcast, and join the discussion group, answer the questions, and speak in code so Mike Zuckerberg doesn't shut, shut us down. down. Amen? Amen. Anything else, friend? Talk to us. We talk back. Bye.